In our text here, we find a storm at sea, and it's a familiar and a famous story in the Bible. And we see how the Lord Jesus Christ handles it, and after He does, the disciples, with shock and awe, say, what manner of man is this? The apostles at the last part of verse 41 asked the question, what manner of man is this? We can't begin to answer it. In fact, John says the world itself couldn't contain the books that should be written. What a creator What a a king we have. What a savior we have. That's what manner of man we have. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark and the fourth chapter, Mark chapter 4. I stood in this pulpit yesterday officiating at a funeral, and I um, was making the point from the Bible that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And I quoted him. He says that in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what he said. Of course, uh, the people were very attentive at that point because if you know uh, what society is like out there, that's not politically correct to say, is it? That there's only one way to heaven and that Jesus is the only way to, to get to heaven. But that's what Christ himself said. That's a statement he made. He made a bunch of statements, folks, that made people sit up and go, what? Because he was different than any other man who ever walked this earth. I'd like to talk about that today. We're going to be talking about what manner of man is this. And we pick it up in Mark chapter 4 in our study here, beginning in verse number 35. It says, And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You can see where we get the title. What manner of man is this? Let's find out. But let's pray first, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So special. Father, never has one walked this earth like the Son of God. Father, I do pray that as we talk about his life, take a glimpse into the times of Christ and the life that he lived upon this earth. May it change us and help us. May you help us now to listen carefully and receive now your conviction, your admonition, your guidance, your teaching, whatever you might want to give us. Help us now to receive it. We ask it all now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Did you know that the Bible firmly and compellingly declares that Jesus Christ is God? Not just the Son of God, which He is, but God the Son. We call that deity. 
The Bible teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, we read this in the Old Testament in Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. It's talking about Jesus Christ. It calls him the Mighty God. Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are all one and the same. Jesus Christ was and is God. In fact, Christ said when he walked this earth in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. You get the picture? When you've seen the Father, you've seen Jesus Christ because they're one and the same. I and the Father are one, he said. The Bible says in Titus 2.13, it mentions the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He emphatically proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, God the Son, the great I Am even. He claimed to be the I Am. In fact, when it came down to it, he received worship, which only, only God should receive, right? But Thomas knelt before him and he said, My Lord and my God. And he was right. The Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ as even the creator of everything. In John 1.3, it says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Bible also teaches that he existed eternally. In eternity past, he was there. And in John 17, 5, he prayed and said, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's God. He's always existed. He's created all things. And when the smoke clears and the dust settles, he will be the judge as well. He will judge everything. And that is the reason we call him the Lord of all. He is the Lord over everything, including nature. And today we're going to see him calm nature, tame nature, because he's even Lord of that as well. In our text here, we find a storm at sea, and it's a familiar and a famous story in the Bible. And we see how the Lord Jesus Christ handles it. And after he does, the disciples with shock and awe say, what manner of man is this? As we look at this passage here, we see what I call, first of all, The exhausted Savior. The exhausted Savior. Can you imagine a day in the life of Christ? I mean, He gets up early. He prays before anyone else gets up. As people awake, He begins to minister to them. He preaches all day long. He heals continually. There's virtue going out of Him. And the Bible says there were times when they had had no leisure. No so much as to eat. They were skipping meals. That's how busy Christ was. And, and there would be times where he would say to his apostles, come apart, let's rest, let's go out into the desert for a while. And people even follow him out there. So c- can you imagine what he felt like by the end of the day? Finally, the crowd is dismissed. And we read in verse 35, And the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, that is his disciples, let us pass over unto the other side. You ever been so exhausted? That you just, I mean, if you, if you sat for a moment, your, your eyes closed and you were out. That's how tired Jesus Christ was. I was talking to a fellow this last week. I mean, he, he works from sun up to sundown. And he said, when, when my head hits the pillow, it takes me about 13 to 15 seconds <laughs> to fall asleep. I wish I had that gift. But he said, I am just out. Well, we find out in verse number 36, the beginning tells us here, and when they had sent away the multitude... They, they took him, Jesus, notice these words, even as he was in the ship. You ever thought about that? What's it talking about? Even as he was. What, what, what was he like? He was exhausted. He was wrung out. He was shot from the activities of the day. They took him a totally exhausted and bone-tired 
into the ship. Why? Well, he was in ministry. Folks, that's ministry, by the way. It'll wear you out. You say, but, but pastor, this is God. I mean, he shouldn't have gotten tired, right? Well, he was 100% God, no question about that. But he was also 100% man. We forget that. He was a 100% man. In fact, if you've read 1 John and kind of scratched your head going, what's John driving at here? In that little epistle toward the end of the Bible, really what he's doing is trying to refute something that was going on at that time called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism didn't have issue with the fact that Jesus was divine, that he was deity. Their issue was that he wasn't really man. And so John kept saying, no, he, he was a man. In fact, in 1 John 4, 2, he said, Hereby you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. In fact, you'll find that three times. Christ came in the flesh. Christ came in the flesh. And John there is defending his humanity. The Bible says Jesus Christ was as human as you are and as I am. The Bible says he was made of a woman. That means he had a natural birth like anyone else, except for the fact Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's never happened before. That's never happened since. And, and, and yet Jesus Christ was virgin born, but he was nonetheless man. His name would be called Emmanuel. You know what that means? It means God with us. When Jesus Christ took on flesh and came to this earth, that was God visiting the earth. But the reason he took on flesh was in order to experience humanity. He was every bit as human as we are. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. It's not hard to figure out who it's talking about there, is it? And it's, it's referring to Christ, it's implying, it's describing that it's, it's Jesus Christ, but it calls him God. God was manifest in the flesh. By the way, there are some Bibles that just say he was manifest in the flesh. And, it, and they take out one of the greatest verses in the Bible on the deity of Christ. I chucked that Bible as far as I could. Because this is a powerful verse on the deity of Christ. God was manifest in the flesh, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Now, God took on flesh. And you say, well, why? So that he could relate to you and so that he could relate to me. I mean, you look at the life of Christ. He, he was born into this world the same way we are, though virgin born. His, his growth was natural. The Bible says he increased in wisdom and stature. You explain that to me, the wisdom part. I can't explain that. But he had all the emotions that we have. You find him sorrowing at times, even weeping at the graveside of, of Lazarus. He experienced those emotions. He experienced hunger. There were times when, when he would come up on a fig tree hoping there was something on it, and, and uh, he was hungry, the Bible said. There were times when he got thirsty, especially on the cross. He's, he said, I thirst. There were times when he got weary. We find him in John chapter 4, sitting on the edge of a well there in Samaria, tired, weary, just like us. And here we find him once again in Mark chapter 4, tired, bone tired. I, I mean, he had to sleep. Why? Because he was a man. We find in Hebrews 4.15, For we not ha have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted 
like as we are. The high priest we have is not one that stands aloof like uh, so-called Allah and other gods who, who don't want anything to do with their creation, who stand afar off, who, who, who don't want to be uh, concerned with or approached. No. Our Lord and Savior said, I want to experience every facet of humanity so much so I'm going to take on flesh. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. He says, I know how you feel. I don't know how you feel here today. I don't personally know that, but he does. Whatever you feel like today, he's felt it. He's gone through it. He has experienced it. If you are faint, if you are uh, frazzled, if you are fatigued, Jesus has been there. And so here we find an exhausted Savior. Secondly, we find an explosive storm. Notice in verse number 37. It says, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. You'd have to understand something about the Sea of Galilee. It's not called the Sea of Galilee anymore. It's called a Yam Kinneret. I think the Jewish people call it that. But it has been called uh, Gennesara in the past. It has been called uh, Chinneroth in the book of Joshua, uh, where it was still around even then. It's called the Sea of Chinneroth. The Romans gave it their own name. Tiberius figures, right? The Sea of Tiberius after uh, their emperor. But, but it really wasn't and isn't a sea at all. It, it's not salt water. It's a freshwater body of water. It's only about 13 miles by about uh, 7 miles. It's kind of shaped like a harp, if you've ever looked on a map. And it's, it's actually below sea level. If you can picture this, it's 690 feet below sea level. It's way down there. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the whole world the Sea of Galilee. And it empties out through the Jordan River on the south side and runs down into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the earth. But it's, uh, it's both spring-fed, f- spring but it's also fed from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a huge mountain. It, it rises about 9,200 feet above sea level. And, and so all that runoff, all the snow melt, all that, comes 900 and, or 9,200 feet down and eventually gets down to the Dead Sea, 1,400 feet below sea level, a drop of about 10,500 feet. And so that's the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and for that area, it's the source of drinking water. It's also the source of commerce. There's a lot of fishing still that goes on uh, to this day. But it is a lake that is extremely vulnerable to high winds. You need to understand the, the t- topography there or the, the geographics of that area. There's actually a tunnel that runs from... From, uh, from Syria, or it creates a wind tunnel. It's a valley, but it runs about 4,500 miles all the way from Syria down through Africa and Mozambique. And it passes right through that area there. And the, the cool air of the Golan Heights will collide at times with the warm air of, of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm telling you, the, the storms will be turbulent. And they will have, even in recent days, up to 10-foot waves have been recorded there. Uh, there's a guy I go fishing uh, up within uh, Canada every year, a pastor friend of mine. I wasn't on this trip, but, but he said there was a trip when he, he uh, was out there fishing with a preacher's son, and, and all of a sudden this storm came out of nowhere, and they didn't feel it, but they saw it first. They looked up and they saw the tops of the trees breaking off, and they went, oh no, <laughs> here it comes. 
And I'm telling you that the waves were huge. He might be exaggerating, but he said 10-foot waves there. And he said they were trying to make it to shore and gunning it, little 14-foot fishing boat. And he said there are times that there was nothing in the water except the prop. <laughs> and they're just trying to get to shore. They crash into shore and, and they, they hid behind this rock. He'll, he'll still point out that big boulder when we go up there. And he'll say, that's where we rode out the storm. You know, we have a rock today, don't we? And we can hide behind him in, in the midst of the storms, can't we? Now, in this case, the rock's in the boat. <laughs> these, these disciples had nothing to worry about. They had the creator of the universe in their boat here, if you can imagine that. You know, the uh, Bible speaks about this, this great storm coming up here. And I forget which gospel it is, but the, the Greek word for it is seismos. We get our word seismology from it. And, and what it's doing, it's referring to a, a, uh, a storm so violent, it's, it's kind of like the earth was trembling. If you can imagine that kind of a storm, a seismos storm here. I think the devil was behind it. I, I believe from my study of the scriptures, and especially the book of Job, that Satan can mess with the weather. Do you believe that? And, and so here's this storm at sea, and you go, what's he up to here? Well, maybe he wanted the Savior to drown before he got to the cross. Think about that. Maybe he didn't want any blood to be shed for the atonement of sins. And so here he is, and I'm sure the, the disciples had never seen anything like this, but Jesus Christ, the exhausted Savior, is in the back of the boat. The waves are coming over the top of it. He's got to be soaked to the bone. How could he sleep through that? Can you, can you imagine how tired he was? We see the exhausted Savior. We see the explosive storm. But thirdly, we see the erroneous surmising. The, the, the apostles think wrongly here. In verse number 38, it says, And Christ was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? You know, I meant to grab a songbook, and I'll refer to it later on. But we have a, we have a song in the songbook entitled, Does Jesus Care? Have you ever sung that before? I think you have. Does Jesus Care? And the, here's the disciples, and they're saying, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? You know, that's really the rub in this world, isn't it? That is the $64,000 question. Doesn't God care? If there is a God, why doesn't he do something about the condition of this world? All this pain, and the, the war, and the bloodshed, and the suffering, and the abuse, and all this stuff going on. It's, it's fodder for the skeptics. You've heard these arguments. I've heard them. If there is a God, why does this go on? Well, question. What is the reason for the junk that's going on in this world? The, the child molestation, the, the, the car accidents where drunks are, are killing innocent people, and, and the drugs, and the sex, and the pornography, and the money laundering. And What's the source of all that? Is God the problem there, or could it be man is the problem there? Let me just say, in every single case, the problem is with man. And if you want to get rid of the problem with society, the sin problem, you'd have to get rid of man, right? I mean, if we're thinking here, so the reason that we don't have some utopia going on on this world or some Garden of Eden and, and uh, this land of, of milk and honey like everybody wants to have and talks about is not because of God. The reason we don't, we're, we're not in the promised land, if you will, is because uh, of man, not God. We read in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have no reason to be putting a fist in God's face and saying, why is all this going on? The nerve of us. 
It's our problem, folks. We create, and I say we, we've created the problem with our rebellion. We've created the problem with our stubbornness. The ex-Beatle, John Lennon, years ago, was always talking about peace, peace, world peace. Imagine a world with no religion and churches and all, you know, and, and, and just imagine all this. Imagine world peace. You know what? He couldn't even get along with the other band members. You know, we, we talk about nations getting along when husbands and wives can't get along. We talk about the world holding hands and getting along when, when parents and kids are, are fighting. The, the problem is a sin problem. Folks, we're all sinners. We're the ones who have made this mess. Don't blame God. Uh, I think we, we are the ones with anger issues, and we are the ones with uh, jealousy issues. And we're, we're the ones who struggle with stubbornness and selfishness, aren't we? Uh, we're the ones who are proud. We're the ones who are uh, insensitive. We're the ones who are ungrateful. We are the ones who disregard God and are unthankful to Him. And how, how hypocritical can we be to blame God? The problem is not with God. You know who the source of it is? Me and you and you and you and you. And I don't have that kind of time. All of us, right? We are the problem. And so God is not the one on trial here. In fact, we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves us. He gave His only begotten Son. He sent Him to the cross to die for our sins. He, he, He allowed Him to be beaten beyond recognition practically so that we could be saved. We're the problem. Isaiah 53, prophetically from the Old Testament, says in verse 6 that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. That doesn't sound fair, does it? You talk about a raw deal. And, And so let's not be blaming God for everything that's going on in this. God's not the problem. You know, there are three enemies. Honestly, we all have them. The world is no friend of God's. That's enemy number one. Uh, The world is not pro-Bible. Have you noticed that? There's the world against us. There's the devil who's against us. The Bible speaks of him as the enemy. He's your arch enemy. But then there's our own flesh. The old nature within. That's the reason we need the Word of God. Yet, God could take all that negative that goes on in this world and still use it for His glory and honor, can He? We read in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So let's go back now to that erroneous surmising. The, the apostles are accusing Christ of not caring. Carest thou not that we perish? And it does beg the question, does Jesus care? I, I mentioned this song here. Um, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does He care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong, when for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long. Does Jesus care when I said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, 
And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Never, never, never forget that. He does care. We read in 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. I'll say it again. He cares for you. Well, in verse number 39, the Bible says, And He arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The Bible says the wind just died. It didn't slowly die down. The wind just it just cut off. He said, peace, be still. And the wind stopped. Here we are, the very Creator who created all the waters and set boundaries around them back in Genesis and said, go no further than this. All of a sudden cuts off the wind. And the Sea of Galilee, though turbulent, becomes placid as glass, just smooth as a mirror, instantly, because the Son of God has spoken. And up and down that 4,500-mile valley, the wind just stopped because God had spoken. Yeah, I would say there was a great calm. We see the exhausted Savior. We see the explosive storm. We see the erroneous surmising. And finally, we see some essential statements made here. First of all, look at this one. In in verse number 40, And he, Jesus, said unto them, the apostles, Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? This is a mild rebuke. Fellas, (laughs) come on! Now, these guys had been fishermen on that, some of them at least, Andrew and Simon and James and John. and They'd been fishermen on the Sea of Galilee since they were this high. Little boys, grown up on that. I mean, 30 years watching storms on the Sea of Galilee and, and navigating through perhaps some of the worst storms you could imagine, but they'd always gotten through them, obviously here. And yet, <laughs> their effort is no match for this storm. And they recognize it. They are out of their league and, and they're, they're, whatever they're doing with the rudder and the paddles and the sails and, and trying to get out of this mess. And, and they're going down. It's, it's SOS time. I mean, they're, they're, the distress signal is going out because they know this is it. They bought it. But wait a minute. They should have known better. They should have known they weren't going down. Because of something Christ had said in verse 35, and maybe you didn't even catch it. But notice the red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, the words of Christ in the last part of verse 35 say, let us pass over unto the other side. Did you catch that? Fellas, we're going over the other side. He'd already said it. It was going to happen. There's just a storm between now and then. Now think about this. When you and I get saved, that's when we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ In repentance and faith, we place our trust in what He did on Calvary's cross to save us, and we're born again the Bible way. Now, we have this promise of heaven. It's out yonder. We can't lose our salvation. It's waiting for us. Streets of gold, uh, gates of pearl, mansion, all that stuff is there. But, guess what? Between here and there, there's going to be some storms, right? There's going to be some storms. Before we arrive at the celestial city, there's going to be some storms. Just yesterday, we had a, a, a funeral here, and, and uh, we said our goodbyes to a fellow in the church. 
A, a, a guy who was, from the time he was young, had suffered with one infirmity after another and, and bad health and, and still kept smiling through it all. May I say to you, God never promised to us no waves between now and heaven, okay? It's going to get pretty choppy sometimes. Are there going to be some storms? That's a promise. We read in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. You know, sometimes we get the attitude that we're Teflon if we're saved and nothing bad's going to happen to us. And if it comes our way, it's going to bounce off us. That's not true. Think it not strange, the Bible says, concerning the fiery trials which are to try you. Don't go, what's going on, man? I'm a Christian. God's my father. What's going on here? No, God has a reason for all that. We read in 1 Peter 5.10, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect or complete, establish, strengthen, settle you. The trials are coming, folks. Now, here's the question. Like the apostles, do our trials make us lose our faith in God? I mean, do we just lower God in a few notches in our mind and go, okay, okay, I, I'm not going to have any faith in Him anymore? The apostles should have known better. They should have known better. I, I mean, think of it. They'd, they'd seen all these healings. The palsy guy had been let down by his four buddies in the midst of Christ, and Christ healed him. Uh, the demoniac was, was healed. The demons were cast out. I mean, the, the apostles had seen all these miracles here. Plus, they knew Jesus cared. They knew Jesus loved them, didn't he? We read in John 13, 1, Jesus loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. He would see this thing through, and he would love them all the way to the cross. Plus, these apostles, I believe they knew the Bible. I mean, they'd grown up as little boys in the synagogue and received instruction at the feet of the rabbis, and they knew this verse, or this passage. Psalm 89, 8, O Lord God of hosts, Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Here they have the capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah God, right in their boat. Didn't the scripture come to their mind? Didn't they think, oh, he can handle this? So what was the problem? Well, the last part of verse 40 says they had no faith. That's the problem. That was their problem. No faith. That's our problem, by the way. 21st century, same problem. Is God able? You know, many of us, and I say us who have been saved any length of time, we've seen God work on our behalf over and over again. I, I, I can't tell you the jams God's got me out of, if I could put it that way, and the things the Lord has seen me through. And I should say, when my back's to the wall, you know what? He's done it before. He'll do it again. And you should say the same thing. But instead we say, mm, he's done it before. I wonder if he'll do it this time. Folks, how many times does he have to prove himself? You know, the, the Jews in Egyptian bondage saw, count them, no less than 10 incredible miracles before God brought them out into the, the desert there. And they're at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army's closing in on them. And they're going, Moses, you loser, you should have brought us out here. We're going to all die. I mean, they should have said, you know what? God delivered us and did that stuff back in Egypt. 10, ten miracles. Moses, what's he going to do now? We're just waiting to watch, waiting to see. Why don't we believe God? Is God able? Is God able? We read this, Matthew nineteen twenty six. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, never forget it, all things are possible. Now, 
I said at the outset that, that Christ can control nature. Well, what manner of man is this? He, he can control nature. He can turn water into wine. He can cast demons out. He can have Peter catch fish with golden coins in their mouth. Good night. Or put 153 fish in one net. I mean, he can walk on water. He can heal blindness. He can feed thousands. Uh, he, can, he can raise the dead. Good night. He can control nature. Can we trust him? Can we trust him? You know, we read this golden nugget in Hebrews 13, 5. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That is a promise to you. That is a promise to me. That is a promise to the apostles in the boat that day. He had promised he would never leave them or forsake them. So that is the first, what I call the essential statement. But there's a second in verse 41. Look at it here. The Bible says, and they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this? <laughs> but even the wind and the, the sea obey him. Can you imagine? I mean, um, jaws dropping, shock and wonder as they watch that storm. He just says the spoken word, the storm dies. Who is this? Who is? Who do we have in the boat here with us? Well, just the creator of the universe, just the one who's omnipotent and omniscient and, and omnipresent. In verse 41, it says, they feared exceedingly. They feared exceedingly. You, you would think, wait a minute, they're, they were afraid before, now the storm's gone, and they're, <laughs> but no, now they, they're fearing exceedingly. What happened? They're still afraid here. Well, that's a natural reaction. You know what had happened here? They had gotten a glimpse of God's glory, and all of a sudden there's this realization of, whoa, not only who He is, but who they are. In fact, that's a natural uh, reaction. Many times in the Bible, when, when a holy man even, like an Isaiah the prophet, would get a glimpse of God. In Isaiah 6, 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, he said. The great prophet Isaiah said, I'm undone. He, he feared exceedingly. By the way, Job, in Job 42, 5, he says to God, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He'd been spouting off for a number of chapters here. Where's God? I, I want to ask him what's going on here. I gotta, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. All of a sudden, God shows up and says, You ever created anything like this, Job? You ever done anything like this? And Job's just shriveling up. No, 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 no. And finally, he, he says, and this is a great statement. He says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I behore myself and repent in dust and ashes. How about Abraham, that founder of, of the Jewish race, if you will, that brightest star in the Hebrew heaven? He was a pretty holy man. And yet, in Genesis 18, 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, who, who am but dust and ashes. He realized what he was. You know, we could talk about others like Ezekiel and Daniel who fell on their faces and they went into trances and, and others like Paul that the glory of God temporarily blinded him. That's how great God is. And John, John the Apostle, he got a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ and in Revelation 1.17, when he saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as dead. 
So here's these disciples. They're in the boat and they're overwhelmed with the power of God and the, and, and, and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 41, they make this statement, What manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. There's this new reverence, this new respect, this, this new fear for God. And they should have had it. And yet, and yet they knew the one in the boat loved them, loved them, cared for them, and wasn't going to let them drown. And what a hero he would have been to me, <laughs> rescuing me from death in the Sea of Galilee. Wow. Now, Christian, you can rest confident today. In the, in the storms of life, there's still one who's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He, he's got it all under control. He's willing to help us, and he's able to help us as well. And you can, you can still face those trials in life, but you can claim this. Hebrews 13, 6. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is our helper. We can boldly say that. Paul put it this way, and I love this. In 2 Timothy 4.18, he said, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The apostles at the last part of verse 41 asked the question, What manner of man is this? We can't begin to answer it. In fact, John says the world itself couldn't contain the books that should be written. But let me just close by saying what a, what a creator, what a, a king we have, what a, what a savior we have. That's what manner of man we have. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.